consideration on the back page of your bulletin. <laughs> on the back page of your bulletin, we have said this one before, but I always like putting it in because it's, it's a reminder. You've got to be careful who you think is going to be in heaven. There's going to be some people in heaven who you think is going to be there. Some people, not so much. <laughs> and so this is from an unknown author, and they wrote, <clears throat> The Surprise of Heaven. I dreamed death came the other night, and heaven's gate swung wide. With kindly grace, an angel came and ushered me inside. And there, to my astonishment, stood folks I'd known on earth. Some I'd judged and called unfit, some of little worth. And then indignant words rose to my lips, but never were set free. For every face showed stunned surprise, not one expected me. <laughs> so you, you have to be careful. <laughs> the very people that you don't think are going to be there probably are thinking the same thing about you. <laughs> and that happens. So on our Resurrection Sunday, we wanted to talk about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to talk about what led up to that. Uh, and his crucifixion. Now, I, you have two words, and I gave, I think Joyce misunderstood me on the, on the first one. She said conviction uh, on the front page, but it's actually crucifixion on your, I think that uh, I said it wrong and she misunderstood me. But it's crucifixion. And it's really interesting because you look at today and there's a lot of conspiracies that have uh, been uh, going about, and uh, I remember the day, and, and uh, I was fascinated with growing up with the uh, the murder of John F. Kennedy, and I would look at a lot of the information about it, and the, um, the you know a lot of the uh, programs about the grassy knoll, was there a second shooter, and everybody's involved in that, and boy, I was really fascinated by this. And, uh, and so you had this, and, and there's a lot of evidence today that believed it in a lot of these situations, like with the murder of Martin Luther King, that there was more people involved than what they're saying was involved, right? Uh, the murder of John F. Kennedy. And so you see that there was a conspiracy of people who got together in order to plot for the assassination of these people. And I think there's pretty much a lot of evidence today in those two instances to say that that's true. That it's not a conspiracy theory, it's actually true, that there was other people that were involved in these things. And you see that with the Lord, that there was a conspiracy to put him to death. Did you know that? That there was more than just one group of people involved, that there were several groups of people involved, and they conspired to kill him. And one of the things that's really interesting to me in this conspiracy is that one you see in conspiracies is people are trying to get rid of someone most of the time who are telling something that is true. And it's obviously true. Now, you see what the Lord in John did, chapter 11. He raises Lazarus from the dead. They see it. And what do they say? We've got to get rid of this guy. Because everyone will see that he did this miracle and we can't have that. Right. And so, and Courtney was reading some of the other, other um, illustrations of that this morning. And, and so we want to examine who was involved here. Now, we understand that the Jews were involved, but notice what uh, uh, Dr. Luke wrote in the book of Acts, that it was more than just the Jews. The Jews spearheaded it, but they were, the only, they were not the only ones involved. 
Notice in Acts 4 what it says. The kings of the earth stood up. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And so there you have it. There was a lot of actors involved in putting the Lord to death. And what we're going to see is that they did it. God allowed it. What did the Lord say to the uh, Jews? No man takes my life. I give it. They couldn't have taken it if he not allowed it to happen. And do you know the benefit that we have today as a result of that? Had he not died, would have been significant for us. Because he died and was buried and was raised, there are implications for us as believers today that we are seen as being justified as a result of his being raised from the dead. And so men have one plan. God says, okay, that's the way you want to do it. We'll go that route. But do you know God wins in the end? And there's nothing that man can do to thwart anything that God is doing, even to this day. And we'll see it. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to look at these things. And we're grateful that as believers that we have the opportunity to glorify you and how we're um, and how we're able to conduct uh, our lives as we understand the work that your son did on our behalf. And we're thankful, Father, that it is true. When your son died, we died. When your son was buried, we were buried. When your son was raised, we were raised. And we're thankful, Father, that you counted it to be so that way because he was such a perfect substitute for our sins. And as a result of that, because of that, him being raised, we can glorify you in the way that we can today. And we're thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so as we look at the conspirators that were involved in the Lord's um, death and his crucifixion, and you see these guys as you read through scripture, but you probably run through them, I want to introduce you to them a little bit more. You had the Pharisees who led the charge in his conspiracy. The word for Pharisees is actually used about 90-something times in Scripture. And I give you a definition from Isby as to who this group was. And Isby says that the right of, they, they believed in the right of absolution, uh, while uh, scrupulous about ceremonial purity and were careless with inward purity. Well, they believed they were strict adherents to the law. Funny thing is they were strict adherence to the law, but they didn't observe it themselves. They were a bunch of hypocrites. It's about like the people who continue to push law today uh, in your churches. They talk about observing the Mosaic law. And you know the funny thing about those people? They don't do it themselves. That's what Paul says over in Galatians. I'm not saying it might. It's not my opinion. Paul says that those who try to ad- get you to adhere to law, they, are, they don't adhere to law because nobody can. And so I know that they're not telling the truth. But they want to make a convert out of you, even though they're not doing it. And so you have this as an example in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 1. You see the Pharisees. And their uh, strict, their close companions, the scribes. And so notice in Matthew 23, and we've talked about this a few weeks ago, the Lord, I don't, I can think of any other group of people that the Lord castigated 
like he did these people. He ripped them up one side and down the other. Notice in verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and uh, to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do ye not according after their works, for they say and do not. And that's, I mean, I think you could take that. Anybody who is pushing law, they're hypocrites. Guarantee you they're hypocrites. Anybody who, who pushes observing Mosaic law are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Because they, you will see it, they, they say and they put on an outward veneer, they try to make it look like on the outside that they could do this, but we know for a fact that there's no one, there's only one person that's ever observed law and kept every last one of them, and that is the Lord Jesus. And so you see the Pharisees, and we'll see them um, later on. Then you have the scribes. The scribes were experts in the Mosaic law who sprang up after the Babylonian captivity to educate the nation of Israel on the matters of law. And so they became the experts. I mean, you hear that today, the experts. And, and so they know, boy, listen to them, they know more than anyone else. And you see them used a lot, with, and they, they are joined with the Pharisees and called uh, as hypocrites. They were called here in, in Matthew 23 by the Lord as hypocrites, uh, which they were. Uh, they were complicit in condemning the Lord to death. Notice in Matthew 20, 18, as an example. Matthew twenty eighteen, And so the Lord warned the, uh, several times he told the uh, disciples what was going to happen. And do you know that he told them this and they didn't know what they, when it actually happened, they were shocked. They didn't understand what he was talking about. And so here you have it here in verse 17, Jesus going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples apart in the way. And he says unto them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And on the third day he shall rise again. And so he tells them this on several occasions. And one of the best places to understand why they missed it is in the 18th chapter of Luke. It says that these these sayings were hidden from them. They did not understand the things that he said. I think there's a little blindness. I think also they were uh, so focused on the kingdom that they could not grasp what, what he was saying. And you see that in Matthew 16 when Peter says, be it far from you, Lord, that this should, uh, this should happen to you. And then you had the Herodians. Now the Herodians, and we, we can understand this today. They were Jewish leaders who were followers of Herod the Great and his dynasty. And so they were political operatives inside Judaism. And so they played a role in it as well, and we'll see the role that they played. Then you had the chief priest, uh, which is used in the New Testament of the high priest of the nation of Israel. And they're pretty prominent throughout, and they were involved as well. Then you have the elders and which referred to the Jewish elders of the synagogue, usually associated with the scribes and the Pharisees. And then you had the uh, Sadducees, and uh, as Scott called them, the ones who were sad, you see, <laughs> were a smaller group 
than the Pharisees, but were often in control of important political and religious positions. Their denial of the resurrection of the dead and their acceptance of only the first five books of the Old Testament are important elements in some of the important differences which arose between the Sadducees and the Pharisees in one of the most important places where you see that that division is in uh, Acts 23 where Paul was in prison and uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both fighting to keep him in prison and being very crafty in that situation he knew that there was a division between them the Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection from the dead and the Pharisees believed it and what does he say men and brethren I am in prison today because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and what happens (laughs) He gets them fighting against each other. <laughs> it was a very crafty thing that he did. But you have the Sadducees uh, that were involved as well. Now, what's interesting is the participants in this conspiracy continually met together to conspire together to put the Lord to death. They first tried to subdue him and tried to undermine what he was doing. And when that wouldn't work, they tried to kill him. Now, you're going to see this word used uh, in several different contexts, the word for to, they took counsel together. This word for counsel is actually the word sumbule, and it means to gather together with others of the same mind for the purpose of making determinations about some activity. Now, you see this word used as an example if you look over in Acts chapter 25 and verse 12. Acts 25 and verse 12, and it's used of Festus, uh, who is taking counsel with his uh, counsel uh, to make a determination about Paul. And so in Acts chapter 25 and verse 12, let's start at, um, uh, in verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong as uh, thou very well knoweth. For if I be an offender or have uh, committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things, wherefore thou accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them, I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, and so this idea of uh, getting together and making a determination together with someone and it's someone that's like you. And so you're making a determination uh, about something. And so they conferred with the council and he answered, has thou appealed to Caesar? Unto Caesar thou will go. And if you read through the book of Acts as you in your reading, this is just a really fascinating thing about what happens here. And you see God's allowing certain things to happen to Paul. Paul makes certain determinations, and God says, okay, that's the way you want to go. Well, we'll go that direction. And, and it's just really interesting to see how it turned out. Uh, but it's used, this word is used exclusively in the Gospels to describe the conspiracy by the Jews to undermine the Lord's ministry. Now, notice, if you will, they, their aim of this, their counsel as they met together, they first wanted to try to undermine him. <coughs> And the first thing that they did is they tried to entangle him in his talk. Notice in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15. 
And so the Lord is uh, giving a, uh, a, a parable here uh, concerning what would happen uh, after the king left, after he went away. And notice he gives this, and we'll pick it up in verse 11. And when the king came to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now notice here what he's doing is he's, he's telling uh, the Jews what's going to happen as a result of their rejection of the kingdom. And they're going to get what he's saying here. And they're not going to like it. And notice he says in verse six, uh, uh, 13, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. <laughs> then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in its, his talk. And so this ideal that they wanted to, as they, they uh, heard what he was saying, they took him and they, they, they counseled together and they determined together how they might trap him uh, and how they might be able to say something in order to be able to trap him and get him to say something that uh, he shouldn't say. A good example of that, if you turn back just one chapter here, this is one of the most interesting ones uh, in the chapter 21. Uh, notice in verse 23, it's a good illustration of it. And when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him and as he was teaching and said, by what authority do you teach these things? Do, uh, do, uh, thou these things, um, what authority thou doeth these things? And he gave, uh, and who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which of you tell me? I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned within themselves, saying, If we should say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, we cannot say. And he said unto them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And you see how evil people are? And you could see this even today. You get people and it's not about what's true. It has nothing to do with what's true whatsoever. They could care less about what's true. It's that if you're interfering with their program, which the Lord was here, the Jews had this established program. And we're going to see it in John 11. And John 11, what did the high priest say? If we don't do something to this man, the, Jew, the, the Gentiles will come and they will get rid of our nation. You see. And you see it consistently. With, and it's just a thing that you see with people. That people will conspire when they believe that what they have is threatened. When what they have is threatened. And so, notice you see it there. And notice the main attempt that they see, and you see this uh, main attempt they used to entangle him was to tempt him. And it was pretty constant. Notice in Matthew, the 19th chapter, they tempted him with questions of explosive issues just to see how he would respond and to try to uh, entice the, the crowd against him. And so the 19th chapter of uh, Matthew, you see it. Notice in Matthew chapter 19, and we'll pick it up in verse uh, 1. 
And so they wanted to ask him about divorce. And so in verse one, and and it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and he came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, saying unto him. Now, do you think they really wanted to know this? No, they were putting him to the test just to see what his answer was going to be. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Well, back under law, they would allow a husband to get rid of his wife for a lot of causes. I mean, today, maybe if a burnt toast or any number of things, a husband could just write her a bill of divorcement. You're done. Notice how the Lord answers this, verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the the word twain, the two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. And I think what he's getting to here is their motives. They don't understand what marriage was about. And he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They said unto him, then why did Moses command a, 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 a command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And notice what the Lord says here. And he says unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so what were they trying to do? They're trying to trap him to get him to give the wrong answer concerning divorce in order that they might have a reason to accuse him. You see a similar thing over in John chapter 8 as they bring to him the woman who was in adultery. John chapter 8. Notice in verse, we'll pick it up with verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken into a, taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that uh, such should be stoned. What sayest thou? And so they put him on the spot. They wanting him to respond in the wrong way so that they could have reason to uh, to um, persecute him. Notice in verse six, this they said, tempting him. Um, and the word tempting is a uh, periazzo, a uh, uh, participle form here. They were continually putting him to the test so that they might have to accuse him. And Jesus stooped down with his f- uh, finger and wrote in the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted it up himself and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, 
beginning at the elders, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus has lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman. And he said unto her, Woman, where art thou accusers? Has no man condemned thee? She says, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And so they're trying to put him to the test to see if what he would do with this issue of adultery to see if he would actually give the wrong answer there. And notice again, they tempted him by desiring to ask for a sign. In Matthew chapter 16, and this is really interesting here, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 1 And so you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they come to him, and notice what happens here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came came and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said unto them, When it is evening, you shall say, It will be fair and weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and luring. O you hypocrites! You can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be none given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he left them. Now, this is an interesting thing that he says here. And uh, he later tells them that as Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And they don't, they don't get what he's saying here. And I think a lot of people today who actually read that don't get what he said in that. And so he, he put that out there and, and he was able to um, overcome their uh, attempts to tempt him. Notice they watched him in order to use his miracles against him. Look at Luke, if you would, uh, chapter 6 and verse 7. Luke chapter 6 and verse 7. And let's uh, pick it up in verse 1 and then we'll read down. As it came to pass on the second second Sabbath after the first, that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing uh, them in, in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto him, Why do you do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answered, saying, Have you not read so much at this, what David did when himself was hungered, and uh, and they which were with him? How he went into the house of God, and did take and eat the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him? Is it not lawful to you, uh, uh, which was, uh, it is not lawful to eat, but for the uh, priest alone? And he said unto them, that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And it came to pass on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribe and the Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might make an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man which was of the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth, and said Jesus unto them, I still I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? 
and looking round about them all, he said unto them, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Uh, uh, the whole, uh, restored hold as the other. And notice what happened, verse 11. And they were all filled with madness. That word uh, madness is uh, actually, is they were, uh, it's a word for no uh, mind term. They were out of their minds in how they responded to what he did. Why? Because they thought they had added, and you, you go back into the Talmud, the Jews had added things to the Mosaic law that weren't even what God had said. And they just became traditions. And you could see that today in the church. Do you realize you could point out to people things that the church is doing that has nothing to do with Scripture? Absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. Yet, if you go into some of these churches and you do not adhere to their traditions, it may not go well for you. I think about one day we were at this church and a friend of mine was visiting our church, and I I shall not name the name of this church. (laughs) But he was... uh, Back in the day, they would allow people who were pastors who had a teaching, you could go up in the pulpit. But you could only go up in the pulpit if you had on a suit coat. No suit coat, no pulpit. You don't go up in it. That's desecration to go up in the pulpit. Now, what does a suit coat have to do with going up in the pulpit? Absolutely nothing. But you have these kind of traditions all over this fruited plain of ours and churches all over and they have nothing to do with God whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. And they've leveled, they've actually elevated these and so you can see how the Lord was even in a, a more difficult situation here because the Jews had added to the law and they put these things alongside of the law as if they were important. And notice they tried to discredit him by accusing him of transgressing the law, and you saw it there, they were also sensitive to any credit being given to him. Um, Let's look at John chapter 9 as an example. And this is one of the more comical, I think this is one of the more comical chapters in the Bible. Because you have these Jews who are trying to deny the obvious of what happened here. All because they're trying to protect their turf. And they won't acknowledge something that happened that was absolutely true. And so notice in the the ninth chapter, we'll pick it up. um, Well, let's actually go a little higher. So you you may know the story, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. And Jesus passed by, and he saw a man which was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. I must work the works that, uh, of him that sent me while it is day, for night cometh, and no man is able, uh, no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, and he made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and he washed, and he came seeing. And the neighbors, therefore, and they which were before had seen him that was blind. And they asked, Is this not he that uh, sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said uh, that uh, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said he unto them, 
uh, how, uh, how were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I went and washed and I received sight. And they said unto him, Where is he? And he says, I know not. They brought the, the Pharisees, uh, uh, excuse me, they brought to the Pharisees him before uh, that was aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made the clay and opened his eyes. And then they asked again, the Pharisees also asked him how it was that he received his sight. And he says unto them, he put clay on mine eyes and I washed and do see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man be not of God because he keeps not the Sabbath day. And so in their minds and the Sabbath day, and a lot of this had nothing to do with the law, that they had made up these traditions of what should happen on the Sabbath day. And the Lord did not adhere to those. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. And they said unto the blind man again, Who, what says thou of him? That he opened thine eyes. He said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents of him that received his sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? Now, this is comical to me because the parents, they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. So what are they going to do? They're going to take the fifth. We know this is our son, but how he became, he came to see, we don't know. <laughs> right? And so notice, um, it's in verse 21, but in verse 20, he says, his parents answered him and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we know not. Or who has opened his eyes? We know not. He's of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. <laughs> Verse 22, then the word spake, these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man not confessed that he was Christ, uh, confessed that he was Christ, that he should be put out of the synagogue. <coughs> Therefore said his parents, he's of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind. And they said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know is whereas I was blind, now I see. And they said, then said they to him again, what did he do? What did, what did he do uh, to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them and said, I have told you already. And you did not hear? Wherefore, would you hear it again? <laughs> Will you also be his disciples? <laughs> well, this was just an insult. And notice how they responded. Verse 29. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that you know not from whence he is, and yet he has opened mine eyes. Now we know that God hears not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has not been heard that any man opened uh, any man's uh, uh, opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And here we go. This is their response. Then answered they and said unto him, 
thou was altogether born in sins and you do teach us and they cast him out. <laughs> and so you see this, right? And so what do they do? They see a notable miracle was, was done. And they, in their zeal to actually uh, protect their territory, would not acknowledge it. So they tried to discredit them. That didn't work. They saw the miracles that were done. Notice, and, and just show you one more before we get to the, the rest of it. Look at the 11th chapter here with, with, uh, with Lazarus. You see the miracle that's done. They see that it's a miracle. They acknowledge that it's a miracle. And they still would not capitulate. And so notice in um, verse 42, and uh, let's pick it up. Um, verse 43. And when he has thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto them, Loose him. And they, lo- they let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man does many miracles. If we let them thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. They were more concerned about what they were going to lose than the truth. And you just see this. This is this is who men are. This is who men are. Fallen men are more concerned about what they will lose. And they will actually go against what's true. In order to protect their own. And notice what happens. And, and so Caiaphas steps in and, and then he gives a prophecy concerning what's going to happen to the Lord in that situation. So they couldn't do it by trying to discredit him. And so they were um, maniacal in their opposition to him. They, they failed to discredit him. So what did they, they decide to do? They wanted to put him to death. Notice in Matthew, well, we're in John 11. Let's uh, start there and go backwards. In John chapter 11, read down from verse 50. Um, well, 48, where we're at, and we'll read to 53. So it says um, in verse 49, And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. And thus spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for, the na- for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, it's interesting. If you go back into the 10th chapter of John, the Lord says something and it foretold what was going to happen in the future. He says, I have other sheep who are not from this fold. But that he was going to take those other sheep and they were going to be put into the fold and they would be one fold. And so notice then from that day forth, he took counsel, they took counsel as to how to put him to death. Now, this word for put to death is actually the word, is, the word that's used in the Greek. You have a lot of death terms in the scriptures. 
And this one is to, it's a violent death, to kill him in a violent way. And it's used in Acts 23, 12 of those who sought to kill Paul. And it's to, to put someone to death, to get them dead at whatever cost uh, was necessary. And you see it used that way in Scripture. And then you see it used in Matthew 27 again. When they could not try to find ways to dissuade the people from following him, the next thing they tried to do was to kill him. <clears throat> Verse 27. And when the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. They put Pilate in a bad situation because Pilate, you can see in Luke 24, Pilate did not want to kill the Lord Jesus. You could see that he saw that they were envious of him. And, that, and he saw that. And also we see that, uh, that he understood that the Jews were, were envious of him. And so he did not want to put him to death, but they put him in a bad situation politically. And you can see politics here. You put a politician in a bad situation, he's going to choose to not go against his own interests. And that's what happened with Pilate. And so this word for they, they sought to destroy him is actually the word for... Um, has the idea to put to death, a different word, and it's to destroy fully or literally. It means figuratively. Uh, it's, used, uh, it's used literally or figuratively. Or it's used to unloose or to cause one to perish. And it's used that way in several places. It's used Matthew 2.13 of Herod, who was seeking to destroy the babies um, that were put to death uh, during the time that he tried to destroy the baby Jesus. And you, and you saw that. And so look at, if you would, John chapter 19, and then we'll see what happens here. John chapter 19. On your way back there, stop at John chapter 18. I just want to show you something here. It's interesting, as, a, as a Pilate is talking to the Lord, he sees uh, something interesting here. Most of the time, when somebody is, is guilty, they're trying to... They're trying to... Um, they're trying to defend themselves. And the Lord doesn't say anything. Notice here in verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and he called Jesus and he said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and says, Thou, uh, thou this thing, uh, says thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee, uh, me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priest has delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not out of this world. And really, it's, I would say, not out of this world as the source. In other words, his kingdom is not necessitated on using the armies of this world. He's got an army that these little pittance armies that uh, you see on this earth could not even, they, they would have any ability to stand against. My kingdom is not out of this world. If my kingdom were out of this world, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered of the Jews. But now is my kingdom not out from hence. And Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? You notice his line of reasoning from Pilate's point of view is whether or not he's a king. Do you know during Christ's earthly ministry he presented himself to be king 
and king of the Jews. And notice he says, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou king of the a king then? Jesus answered, Thou said, I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that hears me, that, that is of the truth, hears my voice. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and he said unto them, I find no fault in this man. He tries to get rid of this. He doesn't want to kill him. And uh, the Jews backed him into a corner. Now notice <clears throat> in the 19th chapter of John, in verse 10, then said Pilate unto him, uh, we'll go back again in verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Verse 8, when Pilate therefore heard this saying, he was more afraid. And he went again into the judgment hall, and he said to Jesus, Whence, forth art, whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then said Pilate unto him, Speaketh thou not to me? Knoweth thou not that I have the power to crucify thee? Uh, I have the power to release, and the power to release thee? And Jesus answered, You could have no power, or really that word power there is authority. You have no authority at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivers me unto you has the greater sin. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard this saying, he brought Jesus forth, and set him down in the judgment seat in the place of the uh, called the pavement that is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, and it was pre preparation of the Passover. And above the sixth hour, uh, he said unto the Jews, "Behold your king!" And they cried out, "Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him!" Pilate said unto him, "Shall I crucify your king?" And the pre chief priest answered, "We have no king but Caesar." Then delivered he unto them, therefore unto them, to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And so, you see along the way, they're plotting to try to undermine this guy. Why? Because he was a threat to their system. When they could not successfully undermine him, what did they do? They sought to kill him. And so you see this conspiracy together, and I know that a lot of people don't want, it's popular today, don't, don't say that the Jews were involved in this, because that's brought all the persecution on the Jews. Well, you see in the book of Acts, and Quentin's talked about it quite a bit, the Jews were involved. But did you know they weren't the only ones involved? That the Gentiles were involved as well. They weren't by themselves, and God allowed it to happen. Now, what happens as a result of this they put him to death. But do you know that if Christ had not died and been buried and raised, that we would not have the salvation that we have today? Amen. Do you see what God allowed? That God has his plan and purposes. So in, in God's plan, he allowed for this to happen in this way. And what did we read in Acts 4? That it was, well, turn back there. I just want to show you that. In Acts 4 and verse 26. <laughs> 
you could run past this and miss it. But notice in verse 26, he says, The kings of the earth stood up. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ or his anointed. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever, notice, thy hand, and uh, the word counsel there is the word boule, thy decree had determined before to be done. God had already determined in eternity past that Christ was going to be the slain lamb before the foundations of the earth. He allowed these people to carry it out. And so you see it happen there. Now, as a result of that, you can see that um, uh, the believers, uh, God allowed this conspiracy to happen and that God determined uh, or demonstrated his power it was an opportunity for God to demonstrate in his, his power in raising Jesus out from the dead. Let's look at the 10th chapter of Acts, if you would, in verse 39 through 40. Acts 10, 39 through 40. Now, uh, Peter is talking to Cornelius. And I believe Peter comes to some revelation here about what God is doing with the Gentiles that had not been been known before. And so he goes to the Gentiles, to Cornelius' house, and he uh, preaches to them. And these uh, Gentiles become believers. Notice in verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of person. But in every nation, he, he that fears him and works righteousness is acceptable with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of all. That word, I say, which you know was published throughout all Judea. And notice here, this is very important what he says here. And begin from Galilee. When did it begin? After the baptism which John preached. And notice in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and of Jerusalem, whom he slew and hanged on a tree. But notice, he continued to say this point all the way through the book of Acts. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Isn't it a wonderful thing? I mean, can you imagine as Paul saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. Now, I really believe from what we're studying here in 2 Corinthians, I think that Paul knew the Lord experientially. I think he was one of those Pharisees that was persecuting the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. And so he sees this light on the road to Damascus. They think that they've gotten rid of this guy. And he says, who art thou, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. I would have liked to have been just understood what was going through his mind when he heard that, whom you are persecuting. The one that they killed and put to death had been raised from the dead. Do you know this is what we celebrate today? 
and Courtney gets into the secular part of it about the Eshtar and all of that, and it is bad. It seems like the uh, pagans have co-opted every Christian holiday from Christmas to Easter. But its point stands. This is what is really known as Resurrection Sunday. That we're not, and it's funny to me when I see it anymore, a lot of the people that walk around with the crosses and they got the cross on this and they got the cross on that. Do you know that cross is not worth anything if Christ was still in the tomb? It's not the fact that he died on the cross. It was the fact that he was raised out from among dead ones. That's the point. And that's what we celebrate today. And I notice as a result of that, as a result of the believers resurrecting Christ being raised from the dead, look at what the believers have benefited from. And I'll just show you just a couple of things here. Notice in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. It is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's the thing. <coughs> And so notice in verse 24, remember, there were a lot of people that died on crosses. They're still in their tombs. Christ is the only one that was raised. Notice in verse 24, uh, Romans chapter 4, start with verse 19. And not being weak in the faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he was had promised, he was able also to perform and therefore was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, but it was imputed to him that it was imputed to him. But for us also, whom also shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our what? Justification. Do you know God counts you and I to be righteous because of the work that Christ accomplished? And as a result of that, you and I now share a position in his son, Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And so it's the basis of how God can see you and I today. If he hadn't been raised, our position and who we are now would be completely different. God can deal with us as we are based upon the work that Christ has accomplished and so notice in Romans, the sixth chapter, you see it, um, some of the things said. Romans chapter six and verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in the sin nature that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to the sin nature live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him and with, by baptism that just as Christ was raised out from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. You see that? Christ was raised. We were raised. We're raised together with him. And as a result of being raised together with him, that we are seen as being sitting at the Father's right hand, and the believer can actually walk in a new kind of life. 
as a result of that. If Christ is not raised from the dead, none of that happens. In fact, Paul talked about the resurrection of Christ as being so essential to everything that is happening to the believer today that without it, if Christ is not raised from the dead, what does he say? You and I might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and nothing will happen. Notice what he says in Rome and uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's start um, in verse uh, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Now he's saying this on the backdrop of the fact that there are, this body here that we have is controlled by our souls. It's a sukikos body. The body that we're going to get in the future, it's going to be driven by the Spirit. And it's going to have the ability to do things that this body could only dream about. And he actually likens it to Christ's glorified body. I believe it's going to have the ability to transcend material matter, to be able to go from here to the third heaven, lickety split. I always say I'd like for that to happen, the rapture to happen on a day when they're sending off a rocket uh, into outer space. I think we'll pass it. The rocket will be far behind where we're at. Because I think we're going to be going at a tremendous rate of speed. Now, notice he says, if, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We should not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So some people are not going to die. When the rapture occurs, some people are just going to be changed automatically. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, now some, this twinkling of an eye, someone says it's going to be amount to before you could actually bat your eye, it's going to happen. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we all shall be changed. Amen. Right? Isn't it a wonderful thing? I mean, you look around, so you see these people who had this conspiracy against the Lord. We may not ever find out who killed John F. Kennedy. Maybe you might want to know when you get to heaven. You say, Lord, just one thing. I just want to know. Was there a conspiracy against John? Was there a conspiracy against Martin Luther King? Who killed those people? We really see in Scripture the conspiracy against the Lord. But do you know God allowed it? And as a result of him allowing it, that we've been changed and we're going to be changed that we have so great a salvation as Paul talked about in Hebrews all the rest of the people out there of these religions Buddha in his grave Confucius in his grave Muhammad in the grave I will not allow people to bring Christianity down to those religions because they're not that way. We serve a risen Savior who's been raised out from the dead, out from among dead ones. It is the fundamental distinction between Christianity 
in any religion on the face of this earth. What men tried to do, they could not stop. No conspiracy could stop what God was doing. And we benefit from it today. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to see these things and grateful that as believers that we can serve on this Sunday, uh, not Easter, but Resurrection Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection of your son out from among dead ones. And we're thankful today as the benefits that we actually share in this as a result of this resurrection and all of the things that are imputed to us as a result of the work that your son accomplished on our behalf. We're just so thankful for the provisions that we've been given. It's not because of anything that we have done, can do, or ever will do. It is totally by the grace that you've accorded us based upon the work that your son did. And we're so thankful for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.